welcome everybody. This is a to me is a very special night. I've known both of these men for a long time, and um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about both of them first before their topic. I'll go with Dick first since he's the older one. That's the man right there in a the green shirt in the back, holding up the wall. Uh, Dick is a president of Forbes Cons Counseling Services. He's been in counseling for over 30 years. He's counseled individuals, couples, families on a variety of issues, including conflict, stress, trauma, depression, addiction, marriage, so forth and so on. Joey is a 35-year-old insurance agent. He is here with his young wife, Stephanie. We're right back there. Stephanie and Joey are both from East Cobb and Elving Woodstock. They're both Wheeler High School graduates. Um, Joey has been an active member in the George addiction recovery scene for over eight years. Since 2014, he has facilitated accountability and discipleship groups on Wednesday nights. Um, up until 2013, he was not the man that I just described to you. He was completely broken, like Fair said, the, the shells in addiction. He pushed every single person he loved away and lost everything he valued. Uh, he went into Genesis Ministries and really at that through that ministry got redeemed and he got sober. And uh, he's now the man that he is today because of that program. Um, since then, God has restored both Dick and Joey and uh, in ways that they never dreamed that God would answer prayers the way he did. Uh, they never thought it would be possible. One being that Dick Forbes ended up becoming Joey's stepdad. How about that? So they're going to be talking about uh, God's restoration process. And uh, they're going to break down what restoration looks like for both of their lives. They both have a unique story of God's restoration pro uh, process. And uh, they're very engaging. And listen to them because they've been there and done that. So let me go ahead and open in prayer and then invite you all up here. Father, we just thank you for being the order of the universe, God. You have the big picture. You see things that we don't see. You see things in us that we don't even believe we can become. Father, I just pray tonight that Dick and Joey will be speaking words that you put on their heart, words of hope and encouragement, Lord, that you are always there. You're never going to forsake us. Father, I just pray you'll bind up our broken hearts for the loved ones that we are still struggling with or watching struggle, God. We just, we just get tired, Lord, of wondering when is this going to end. Father, I just pray that uh, we'll leave here tonight encouraged, motivated, and uh, restored in our faith, Lord. We just love you, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, gents. Hey, guys. Um, like, like John um, was kind of saying, uh, I've, I've come to this before. It's been about six years since I've been, I was actually part of the, the prodigal panel um, Fair was talking about, and I definitely didn't think um, back six years ago when I was sitting up here, that I would ever be at that point in my life. I never thought I would have as much restored. I never thought I would be sitting up here six years ago. I definitely didn't think where I am sitting here today, six years ago, I would have as much restored in my life. Um, and that's really why I'm here tonight. And, and first of all, Dick Forbes and I just want to thank everybody for being here because this is where really getting outside of yourselves and stepping into community and realizing that you guys are not in this battle alone together really happens. You guys taking time out of your Thursday night at 7 o'clock. I'm sure this is the last thing you thought 10 years ago you're going to be coming to. But I promise you, guys, you coming to this is what's the, where real change happens. So we just want to thank you all for, for being here. And 
essentially, like John was saying, our presentation for everyone tonight is just going to be on God's restoration process. Um, for Dick Forbes and I, um, we're going to break down what that restoration process has looked like for each one of us. Um, for a, example, like he, uh, like John said, God used my addiction for Dick Forbes and I to meet, but little did I know that was just a stepping stone in God's restoration process. God has restored more in our lives than we ever imagined possible, but again, it's been a process that we've had to walk through daily. It's a process that still eight years later, eight years later, I'm still having to put work in. I'm still having to put in even more work in if I even did eight years ago, but again, it's a process. So, what me and Dick really are here tonight is just to simply have a dialogue with you. We realize that every single person's story in here is different. What works for us might not work for everyone else. But again, we're here just to show you our experience that we've had walking through this together. Um, and, and again, just to give some of you guys hope. You can ask my parents back there um, sitting at times um, for a long time how hopeless they felt. For a long time, coming to meetings and coming to things like this, wondering, is it going to make any difference? Is it going to do anything? Is me repeating myself over and over again, is it going to do anything? Are the prayers working? I don't know how hopeless they must have felt, but I promise you guys, I'm here to tell you tonight, there's not just hope for your kids to get sober. There's hope for everything in their life to be restored, and in the process, stuff restored in your lives too. So again, we're going to tell you about our stories. I'm going to give you my point of view, um, the prodigal child side, um, just to kind of talk to you about what my pit really looked like, um, what my valley looked like. I'm sure you guys will hear some similarities between some of your kids that they went through. I want to give you my perspective on maybe what my thinking was, um, or maybe my lack thereof thinking was because of what I was involved in, um, but also what changed, why I'm standing up here today, and why my life is keep getting, keeps getting restored over and over again. Don't get me wrong, it's been a lot of hard work, it still is to this day, but it's worth every bit of it, guys, and, and that's why I'm here tonight. Me and Dick want to kind of share our perspective on that. And so I'm going to share from the prodigal side, and I wanted Dick Forbes here tonight. He's, he's got counseling experience, obviously, too, but the reason why I wanted to join with him and do this tonight is because he's a parent, too, and I think he's got a really unique perspective on that side of things, too. So uh, my, my main goal, I was talking to John and Ferret when I leave here tonight. I also want to remind parents um, in here, too, guys, that you guys have to still take care of yourselves, too. Um, you guys invest so much in worrying about your kids so so much i'm sure you guys just pour your emotions into into your kids and meanwhile the foundation that kept y'all strong in the in, in the beginning to stand firm through them the stuff is weakening so i, I want to go through here and take the pressure off you guys show you that most of this stuff just is not in your control most of the stuff you guys are trying to do to help them to save them to try to grasp it's just never going to be enough. It's going to have to come from the prodigal. So I want to give you my side of things on that, and we're going to do that in just by a couple ways. Um, so we're going to talk about two main things. Um, the first being our pit or our valley, or as Dick said last night, the dirt I have on you, essentially. Um, so I'm going to walk through essentially what, our, what my pit and my valley looks like. Then I'm going to have Dick kind of walk you through his. So you can see the parent's perspective. So you can see what he's walking through, also what he's walking through as a counselor. But beyond that, we're going to kind of go back and forth and ask each other a couple questions about really what changed for us. Me and him were in a pit for a very long time, and I'm sure me and him almost – I got to a, a state of acceptance of my pit that I was in. I never thought I was going to get out of it, and I'm sure he felt that way at times too. But how did we get out of it? Um, what did we do to get out of it? What did we both do to get out of ourselves? And what did we do and continue to do today to stay on that path with our restoration of God? 
So <laughs> I, I did a testimony here about like a, about six years ago. And I remember y'all asking me to condense it into 20 minutes and me being like, I don't know if I'm going to be able to do that. So I somehow did that into 10 minutes now. So I'm going to go, I guess, with just what I call my sports center top 10 of my terribleness. Um, so my, my, my pit and my valley, if you will, um, I would say lasted for me from age 12 to 28. Um, so nonetheless, I, I, they got a lot of good work um, going through the, that, that pit with me. And when I say um, I, I dragged my entire family down, I especially dragged my parents down because they trusted me the most, they loved me the most, so I took advantage of that the most. I knew I could, I could, I could count on that. I knew I could manipulate that. Um, I started using um, how a lot of people start. It was simple enough as me stealing beers from um, a, a friend of mine's dad's garage and uh, drinking a couple beers. And you know, I never thought anything of it at first, but I do remember one thing, why it escalated so quick. Well, the very first time I got drunk, and I, I very first time I found an escape. I was a very, very, very anxious child growing up, um, always trying to, to calm myself down. And this was the first time something actually helped all the anxiety and stress go. I remember, first time ever, just like a giant relief. I had never had that my whole life. I was so felt so much pressure my whole life. And that finally went away when I first found alcohol. And... All the stuff that I kept inside, all the stuff that I had stuffed down, all the stuff that I, around friends, it, it all just it went away. It was this temporary. It would temporarily go away. I finally found my first escape. So by age 14, just two years later, my parents started to first notice something was wrong. It started simple enough. I'm sure you guys kind of started here, like uh, you started noticing little signs. Mine was skipping school. Terrible grades. I think freshman year, um, they found out I had skipped 32 days and got a 1.6 GPA, and they were like, oh, I thought he was going to school the whole time. Um, so nonetheless, that was the first wake-up call. Age 14, I'm using two years at this point. Um, and essentially, what would happen from there, just from, from there every single year, my parents would have a come-to-Jesus moment with me. All right, Joey, we've got to have stuff come to, come to Jesus. And essentially everything would calm down and then it would start back up again and so essentially from 14 on it just seemed to get worse and worse every year and here's the part that I think is really frustrating for parents I was thinking about there would be moments of victory there would be good moments where my parents would be like oh man he's getting back on track he's doing this he's doing that and then all of a sudden the relapse would come again and they would ask themselves again god I thought he was doing so good what happened god I thought he was doing so good what happened the problem is I was never actually getting to the root of the problem. I was always getting back to this circle of self-destruction that I, I had no tools to get out of. I was just going through it. So, again, never getting to the root of the problem. I was always just calming the fire. I think that's what kids are doing. I think parents, understandably, once the fire is out sometimes, y'all don't want to know how the fire started. You're just glad the fire's out. And I think through this survival thing that we go through, it's that that's what we're doing all the time we're just we're, we're putting out the fire not actually finding where the fire came from and, and guys when I say I dragged my parents through hell I mean it that was just the the beginning of it um it eventually led me to stealing from them all the time um <coughs> from, from cash from their wallets to precious heirlooms I would pawn um stuff from my my grandpa that I can't replace stuff from my mom that I can't replace um and, and I was really resonating on this they didn't it made it where they didn't feel safe in their own household, where they had to lock up their own stuff, where they felt like they, they were trapped in their own house. 
I think about that now, owning my own house, what I had to work for to get it, and that pisses me off, <laughs> like when I think about having a kid like that in my house. But back then, I thought nothing of it because I was so, so selfish, and you were so trapped in the survival of your own selfishness every day. You don't think about stuff like that. It doesn't make it not as hurtful for you guys, but like we're so trapped in our own BS that we're, the least thing we're thinking is how we're affecting everybody. So through this, um, my parents are also worrying every single day that I'm going to end up killing myself, not, not wondering if I'm going to wake up every single day. And um, I pushed my body to the absolute limit. I got pancreatitis by the time I was 23. Um, I had a pretty strong drinking career. By the time I, I turned 23, I was drinking a 30-pack a, a day with a pint of um, Smirnoff every single day, waking up with tremors throughout the night every single time, having to chug alcohol just to make it go down. So naturally, I was in the hospital. Um, I had about a 60% chance of dying. Got fully addicted to painkillers, fully addicted to benzos while I was in there. And my whole life, I've been a cross addictor. Um, that's how I survived as long as I did, was I would either switch to alcohol, to painkillers. I would just go, for, I would switch seats on the Titanic, but I was still going down either way. And again, I, I left the hospital during this time with my pancreatitis with, I think it was about 300 and something thousand dollars worth of a bill. And again, at this time, you would think that would make me go, oh crap, 300 dollars, how am I ever gonna pay this off? I was like, we don't need to pay it. And of course, you know, when you're back there in your selfishness, I'm just thinking, we don't have to take care of it, just whatever. Of course my parents are gonna have to take care of it. Thank God we got it taken care of for me pleading poverty, but the last thing on my mind was the burden I was laying on them. The last thing on my mind was them seeing their kid in the hospital bed with a 60% chance dying and his, and his organ swelled out to here. You know what I was thinking about when I was heading to the hospital? It wasn't about me dying and what I was doing to them. It was, oh, man, I wonder what painkillers they're going to give me. That's how selfish we are when we're in our BS. And the farther we're in it and the less we do, the more to get out of it, the more trapped we are in, in that, stink, that, that terrible thinking. So my body shut, started shutting down on me on a regular basis um, through this too when I cross-addicted with benzos, Adderall, everything else. I started having seizures on a weekly basis. Um, and so much so that EMTs in my area knew my name. They came on site to one of my job sites once and went, there's Mr. Knapp again, and he actually still had my ID from a week before um, when he picked me up. Uh, for a large portion of my 20s, my mom will tell you her biggest fear was this house I lived at. Um, it was essentially a 24-7 party house where we, we sold nonstop, um, partied nonstop, levels of OD using every single night. I, I think I did OD there a couple times at least. But the main thing at this house, we got robbed a lot because we sold a lot of drugs. And I was known for, off and on in the years, the guy that slept with a 9mm loaded Ruger on his chest in his room. So you did not open Joey's door um, in my house whatsoever. Again, I say this to show you how close I should be just to death because I should not be standing up here, let alone with the life that I have. Another big moment, and this is how I met John, actually, or not met John, this is how John took on a case for me a long, long time ago. I was in a horrific car wreck right in front of Holy Family Church off Lower Roswell Road, um, about a mile away from my house. The only thing that saved um, not only my life, but the car I hit in front of me, I hit a car with a mom and dad and two children in the back. The only reason those two children are not dead today is because of a, the car had a lift put on it the week before that allowed me to slightly go under this car and not completely kill these two kids. Um, you, again, you would think that would wake me up, but it didn't. I got out of the car with the engine block less than an inch away from my lap, ran away, police hit me over the head with a mag light. So again, my parents have to come into the hospital seeing me handcuffed to a bed, 13 staples in my head. Again, 
all I'm thinking about is myself in that time. I'm thinking in my head, I'm like, what am I going to do when I get out of here using? I'm not thinking about what they have to see. I'm only thinking about myself. So again, um, another reason why I should not be here today, I got shot at on several occasions from drug deals gone wrong. Um, one example, um, <coughs> we robbed somebody and we were driving away and the car got shot at. Uh, the mirror got shot, side of the door got shot, two shots went through the back where I was sitting. The only thing that saved my life was a subwoofer sitting in the back that had two bullets lodged in it. Again, I should not be sitting up here today. God has a purpose for every, for every single thing. So one thing too, I think a lot of kids do, um, is when you get out of college and stuff, or when you get out of high school, you're like, what should I do? I just should go to college. I tried that. I tried, again, to, to, do, to be normal. I tried to get back on track. I dropped out several times, but I felt like a failure. I felt like I would never accomplish anything. Again, throughout all this, I would always calm the fire. Stuff would go up. I would do stuff to get them off my back, and there would be good moments and victory throughout all this. But again, I would always circle back to the self-destruction, and my parents would always be so surprised anytime I used they had no idea I was even drinking when I got pancreatitis, let alone drinking so hard that I shut my body down. So, again, that's a brief synopsis of my pit. Very, very brief synopsis. And as you can tell, I'm surprised they were there as long as they were supporting me. And the, the least thing I did was appreciate it, let alone be aware of it. It doesn't make it any less hurtful to them what they went through. But until you get, they get out of your own selfishness, that's where I was. That was my pit. Um, towards the very end, living homeless out of my car, just, just hopeless, just hopeless, hopeless, hopeless. And that was my pit. And, you know, but again, my pit brought me to my, my mountaintop. And that's, you know, again, why I'm sitting here today. And um, we grow the biggest from our pits. And I'm sure they can kind of say the same on that. So I was just going to kind of run by you and, you know, see what, what was your valley in your life for you and, you know, go from there. Well, Mr. Forbes. Like, like Henry VIII said to his fifth wife, I won't keep you too long. So. <laughs> uh, mine, you know, um, the parents' perspective, um, and, you know, I've, I've talked with, you know, Joey's folks a number of times. Well, I'm married to one of them, so we talk regularly, but his dad and just what they went through. And, you know, my, as a parent's perspective, when you have a prodigal, and I'm assuming that most people in here, your prodigal is caught up in some kind of addictive behavior and, on the run. But what takes place during that time is um, estrangement. It may not be physical estrangement, but there's emotional estrangement. There's spiritual estrangement. You know, you may be in contact, but you don't know what's going on with them. You have no idea what's going on with them, and you want to know what's going on with them. And, and real briefly, my story is I've got three children. Um, my oldest is disabled, and uh, he lives with his mom. And the other two, um, who I am estranged from, we're going on 14 years now of just minimal, I mean, minimal contact that's going on. And so from a parent's perspective, you know, what happens when that begins to take place? What happens when the prodigal comes into life? Estrangement's estrangement, whether it's, it's no drugs, non-drugs, non-alcohol, it's just estrangement. It happens within that relationship. And, and so, a, again, you know, you wake up and you, you can't believe that this happened to you. And, and to me, it happened overnight. And, um, you know, going from what I thought was a good relationship to nothing. And, you know, the heartbreak that you go through as a parent. You have this child that you can't have in contact with, you not, don't have any contact with and not doing anything with. So there's a tremendous amount of, of just why. I don't understand. And, and, you know, back to Joey, would, would, would I believe this happened to me? No. Never in a million years that it would happen to me. 
And, and so, you know, you wonder why. Who's there to blame? Who can you point the finger at? Um, can I hope again? You know, is, where is God? You get mad at God in this process because he seems absent many times. And, and so you go through this emotional trauma when you go through a, a child that estranges or alienates from you. And it happens within addiction. Like I said, it may not be physical, but you know the emotional part I'm talking about when that child is caught up in their addictive behavior. There is just estrangement that, that begins to take place. So you go through this disbelief. You know, I think God kind of wired us so that we can take shock in, in, on the front end. You know, when something bad happens, we're all running around, I can't believe this happened, I can't believe this happened, I can't believe it happened. But then it hits you. Then it sets in. And what goes off in a parent's heart when these kind of things begin to take place? Despair, depression, anxiety, fear, hopelessness, anger. All these emotions begin to come to the surface when you're going through this process. You're scared to death for this kid. And we end up doing a lot of, a lot of things out of fear, what I call fear-based decisions. We kind of knee-jerk anything to get our kids back. Listen, I tried everything under the sun. Um, I, I tried buying them, you know. I went to my, my investor and said, set, set them up accounts. You know, maybe, maybe they'll have accounts and I'll put money in it for them. Um, I, I, would, I would do everything and just nothing. It was absolute silence. The only thing that I began to tell myself over time is they never blocked me. They never told me not to text them and they never told me to try not to reach out to them. So I always had an open end on my end, but nothing in return. And this goes on for years and years and years and years. So you're going through, and my emotional experience was that I just, I, and I've, I've struggled with depression most of my life, so this was a great storm for me. I mean, I just tanked. I mean, I hit the bottom along that way. And, you know, it, it, it began to isolate, um, just began to pull back. Because you know what else goes with this? Shame. There's a tremendous amount of shame as a parent that you feel. What did we do wrong? And unfortunately, within the church, sometimes you can't talk to anybody in the church about it because, you know, their family's all intact. They look good on Facebook and everything. So there was just a tremendous amount of shame. I, I held it close to the vest. I didn't talk to anybody about it. And, and so with that shame comes that isolation. Who do you talk to? Who do you reach out to? Who do you have a, a relationship with? And, and, you know, because our kids are brought up in a church and brought up in Christian families, you know, they're supposed to, we're supposed to have these great relationships. Listen, they, you can do it right by the book. You can do it exactly by the book. There's no guarantee that they won't go off the rails. I remember this. I had this one guy come see me one time. And uh, it was when I was going through all this. And I think God sent him there for me. And um, he was the epitome of a Texan. You know, he had the belt buckle, the boots, the starch shirts, the starch pants. And, you know, about six foot six. And, and I got this love seat and he took up the whole love seat and at the end of the session he stands up and shaking his hand and he goes you know um, we, we brought our daughter up in the church and I thought how many times have I heard this but he said something I will never forget we didn't bring her up in Christ and there's a difference there's a huge difference that you go and and the the, the brokenness that you go through as a parent the, the pain that you feel, the unknown that scares the bejeebies out of you, the sleepless nights, and, and, it, and it tears at marriages. You know, when you've got a kid on the run or alienated, you know, one parent's on board, sometimes the other one's not. Sometimes they want to blame each other. Well, this is your fault. You enabled him the whole time. Well, you did this, you did that. So it tears at marriages because sometimes there's nobody to blame. There really isn't. You know, who do you point the finger at? And, and so, again, like I said, I played this close to the vest, and I was so ashamed and so embarrassed 
<coughs> and then finally, you know, you, you start breaking through that a little bit. You start telling your story a little bit. And some people don't understand. Some people, well, you must have done something wrong. You must have gone somewhere wrong the line for them. Kids don't do this to their parents. Well, yeah, they do. This is epidemic in our culture now. It's called parental alienation, parental estrangement. You wouldn't believe how much is out there. Not only parents, but grandparents, aunts and uncles, siblings, that begins to take place. So when you have that prodigal within the family system, it's not just the parents. It's the, it's the rest of the family that it impacts, too. So, so you know, that was, that was my pit that I went through. And, and I'm, let's see, I'm 14 years out now. And you start to come to places of acceptance. And we'll get into that a little bit more. But, you know, I still have my days. I still have that days that the pain does not go away. And when you're in the middle of this, it doesn't go away. You wake up thinking about it. You go to bed thinking about it. You go to the bathroom thinking about it. It is always in the forefront of your mind that's here. It just doesn't go away. That pain does not stop. And, and uh, you know, I ended up uh, with a real severe case of AFib and had all kinds of surgeries or anything. And my, my, my GP, who's really one of my best friends, he, um, he, he texted me one day and he said, you know what all this is about, your heart? And I said, what's that? And he goes, it's called a broken heart syndrome. It, it affects you physically. And I started doing research on there is such a thing called a broken heart syndrome. And I started doing more and more research. And one of the things that it does, it affects the electricity in your heart. So you can have physical things that begin to take place in your life. Not only relationship-wise, but and it began to happen to me. It began to affect my health over time. Just because I was so, you know, when they blow a building up, you all see when they blow a building up, what does it do? It goes in. Yeah. It implodes. And that's what happens to us as parents. And that's what I felt. We implode. We go inwardly. And it's hard to get outside of ourselves. It's hard to think, you know, what can I do here? And you begin to think how lonely you are in this. Who do I share this with? I thank God for John and Fair in this group. I mean, because there's a lot of commonality in this group. You know, different stories, but you know what? There's a lot that we can relate to in this group. So, so over time, you, you know, I didn't cycle down and cycle back up. I cycled down and kept going down and down and down and down further into that pit. Still had to get up and go to work every day. Still had to listen to other people's problems every day. Still had to put gas in the car. Still had to answer my bills. Still had, life had to go on. And you know, the functions of it, you just feel like you're a zombie going through these things because nothing has meaning. Listen, the greatest pain in life is the loss of love. Whether it's death, whether it's alienation, whether it's divorce, the greatest pain that you and I can experience is the loss of love. Because when death happens, it's over with. You still love that person, but it's not reciprocated. When you're alienated, you still love that person, but it's not reciprocated. When that kid's on, on, on the run and they're caught up in their addiction, you still love them, but it's not reciprocated. And that pain is so great as an individual that we go through that, that's there. And, and so, you know, this went on for years and years and years in, in my life, and, and it really has been pretty recently. And, and I, I told Jackie, I wouldn't, she asked me not to mention her tonight, but, you know, God gives you a gift sometimes. You know, she's helped me heal so much in my own life. And so I am very grateful for her. <clears throat> and so, you know, God begins to put people in your life when you go through this. People that just say, I, I would have clients that come in that would say something I needed to hear. That would just speak directly to me, you know. And they go, you helped me so much. I'm going, you don't know what you did for me. I don't tell them that, you know. I still want to get paid. <laughs> no, I want to be this isn't reciprocal here. It's one-way street. And, and so I know, I see heads nodding out there that some of y'all relate to this. But you, we all relate to the pain. 
that's there. That's what we relate to. Stories are different, circumstances are different, but the pain is very, very real. You feel it. You feel it here. You feel it in your body. You feel it in your chest. You feel it in your heart. You feel it in your mind. And, and your mind starts to go crazy on you a little bit. And, you, you know, anxiety kicks in a lot of times because of the worry and the fear. Are they going to be dead? Am I going to get that phone call? Am I never going to see them again? Are we ever going to reconcile? And, and so your mind just kind of takes you down that path of what if. And that what if will eat your lunch every day. What if it never gets better? What if it never changes? And, and you know, all the time I'm believing in God. I'm ho- I, you know, I'm like Peter. Where else are you going to go? <laughs> you know, there were no other avenues to go down. But God seemed absent in my life. Heaven just seemed absolutely silent for years in my life. But I kept praying. I kept getting mad at him. I kept shaking my fist at him and going, where the hell are you? You know, like David, are you asleep? <laughs> you know, that's what I felt like. And I know some of y'all feel like that with your circumstances. Where is God in all this? And so it affects your relationship with God, and it did me. And, and so you have a hard time believing. And you know what? The last thing you want to do is get up and go to church and, and sing. <laughs> last thing you want to do is open that Bible and, you know, see how God is. We should praise him and thank him. But sometimes you just plow through. Sometimes you make you do the things that you need to be doing. So that was kind of my pit, and that, that was my story. That, and so I'm, I'm and, and again, I, I'm hoping that parents can relate to where I'm going with this. You know, here's the prodigal, here's the parent side of that pain that we feel. And, and Joey's right. We get angry at them because they're so caught up in their selfishness. Don't you know what you're doing to me? Don't you know how hard this is hurting me? Don't you know? Um, you remember when, when Jesus was in the boat and he was asleep and that storm came and all the disciples said, don't you care about us? You know, I can only imagine him waking up going, what? I feed you, I walk on water, I heal you. Don't we parents want to do that sometimes? What do you mean I don't love you? You know, Look at all I've done for you. We want to say that. But it doesn't do any good. It doesn't help the process. So that's kind of my story, my pit that we're talking about. That's, that's, that's great stuff, man. Well, let, me, let me ask you, yeah, Joey. Sure. What were you feeling during this time? What was going on with you emotionally during this time? What the hell were you thinking? As I used to always hear. Uh, um, man, that's the problem. I wasn't thinking, first of all, because the thinking I was doing was just so self-involved. Um, so I, I was so self-involved, I really, rarely thought of others and what they were feeling. And I wasn't just like, I didn't just not care about anybody. I was just that self-involved. I was that into myself and my own needs. I definitely didn't think about the last thing I thought about was how much stress I was causing everybody else. Because I'm sure you, most parents have heard this from their kids. It's my life. I, just, I should be able to do what I want. How is it's not affecting you? And like, how, like, I was just so selfish and so self-involved. How I don't think that me destructing myself is going to affect people that care and love about me. Like, that's how self-involved I was. Like, but I remember so adamant back in the day, I can still feel my entitlement that I would have of like, it's my life, it's my body, and like, it doesn't work both ways. You can't want to be involved and have someone love you in your life and then have them not care about you at all. Um, so I wasn't thinking to answer that question a lot. I was mainly thinking about myself, and I was always so anxious and so stressed all the time, which is kind of ironic because that's the whole reason I started using to begin with, was to get rid of the stress, to get rid of the anxiety, and, and it would. It would. It would work for a little bit, but all it would do is push it down, and it would just come back compounded every time. So anytime I actually had to face responsibility, anytime that 
there would be stuff that would should have made the lights go off. I just went back into this endless destructive loop. Um, what I kind of felt like it was every single day was survival mode. Um, meeting those basic attic needs first. Everyone else came second. Again, I loved people. I cared about people, but they were always second to my priority. It didn't start off that way. It was a gradual change over years. The longer I stayed in my BS, the longer I went without accountability, the longer I went without being in community, the worse it got and the more it just turned into automatic survival mode. So the last thing, I'm barely thinking my own thoughts at this point, let alone what's happening to everybody else. Um, and again, don't get me wrong. I wasn't a complete POS. I had feelings. I loved my. I felt. I felt guilty at times. But the thing is, the farther you get into your selfishness, you know, I would. I would feel shameful when I was caught, and that's the truth of it. Because I would see how upset they were. I would see all that stuff. I would. I would actually feel upset. But again, that only lasted so long. When you're so trapped in your selfishness that need just slowly comes over that guilt and takes over and then again calm the fire calm the fire a couple days later and then back to the same stuff because if i'm not actually getting to the root of why i am doing the stuff i am i'm just going to end up in this same loop so i wasn't thinking at all um and i was just it, it, i would say survival mode is just the best the way i can think it almost in a default mode the farther i got into it mm-hmm. um how were how are you feeling during during your pit and your I- depression and well, you know, you know, I think probably a best word to describe was confusion. Why? Hmm. You know, and you know what? The why question never gets answered. And so it's the wrong question that I needed to be asking myself. I needed to be asking the how question. How do I survive? How do I get through this? Because what takes place is there was a lot of lost business that I had with my kids. Marriages, graduation, didn't see any of those. So those are lost things that begin to happen in the parent's life sometimes. You don't get to see these special events that begin to take place. And, and, and so, you know, the question is, why do children hurt parents so much? Well, you know, self-centered, self-reliant, all those things. And, and you go, it doesn't make sense. Well, here's why it doesn't make sense, because all logic has been thrown out the window. <laughs> there is no logic to this. There is no rhyme and reason to this. There is no figuring this out. And, and I always wanted to know, you know, what, what, were, the, what were the side of this? Um, you know, so, so the, the, the thinking and the feelings were, one, I kept thinking, what do I need to do to fix this? How can I fix this? How can I make this right? How can I change this? And, and you know, I wrote letters. I wrote letters of apologies. I, I, I asked, begged to go to, to counseling. I, I, I sent them money. I mean, I tried it all, you know, but nothing. Just absolutely nothing. It just seemed like God just shut it all down. You know, whatever you're going to try to do, Forbes, it ain't going to work. You know, and, and, and that's called, you know, uh, divine mercy mm-hmm. in our lives. Sometimes it's severe mercy that he has to strip us away completely. And, and so, you know, with all these things going on in, in my own life, the, the feeling was I would begin to come out of it and I'd think, i think I've got to let go of this. You know, about year six, year seven, I've got to let go of this. And, and it, it just never would happen because always I wanted to go back to try to fix it, to try to control it. And it, just over time, there is no fixing in some cases. You know, there is nothing that you and I can do in, in this whole process. So that was a lot of my thinking process yeah. that, that was taking to place. 
you know, just just give me a chance. Let me make my case. Meet with me. You know, all these kind of things that I kept trying to put myself in front of them. And I know as parents, when you have a prodigal child, don't you want to do that? You know, come let us reason together. I had uh, lunch with a, a, a friend of mine not too long. I think it's probably been a year or two ago, but he's got four kids. And we were having lunch, and they're all grown, and three of his kids are very successful, gone on with life and everything, but he's got that fourth one that's the prodigal. And we were sitting there at lunch, and he says to me, he goes, you know, I, I love all my kids dearly, but he said it's that prodigal that does something here to me. And I go, I get that. And you may feel like that too. You know, you may have kids that have gone on, done great things, but it's that one, that one that, that you know, God just puts into your life that there's something very, very special about that, that's there. Hmm. And, and, and so, you know, I kept looking for anything. And so I began to come out. You know, I began to, you know, read more books. I began to contact more people. I began to, you know, I got into groups. I got into these things just trying to figure out what is the formula? What is it that you need to do to, to make this thing work and turn that corner? And I haven't found one yet, <laughs> but learned a lot about myself in the process because there's, there's not a magic pill. And, and I would hear stories from people, yeah, you know, we were... You know, um, strange for four or five years, but you know, God brought us back together. You know, and you kind of go, "Yay!" You know, yay for now. <laughs> and but you do, you feel a sense of envy. Why not me, God? You know, where's my reconciliation? Where's my happy ending in all this? And and you know, sometimes God, I think God, I think God, who the people that are very very special to God are the people that He's just ripped every which way He knows how to rip them. Mm. Because we come out of that way and thinking, you know, okay, he's done something for me. He has changed me. So, you know, I, I became a Christian in, in college, but it really was this through this process that I began to know God. I began to commune with God. I began to do something different with God. Because, again, he had to tear me every which way you can think of. So that's what I was thinking. So well, that's, that's, that's great. And really, what do you do after that point? Um, uh, clearly something changed for both of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I have a lot of people ask me, and I had to ask myself during this, what, what changed for me? A lot of stuff changed, but there were some highlights for me that, that really kind of stuck out. First being, I finally had, and I have in all caps, nowhere else to turn. Because well, I mean nowhere else. Living out of my car, homeless, waking up blacked out in areas I never thought before. And, and, and again, I lost all my safety nets, all my unhealthy ones. I had pushed everyone away, and my parents cut me off completely. Now, I mean completely, because my parents, long time ago, learned not just to give me cash. I'm sure everyone learned that pretty quick. You don't give your kids just, you know, cash for the most part, especially when they're using you know what they're going to spend it on. But, you know, a lot of ways that, as parents, you guys want to help your kids still. You want to be there for them. You want to help encourage them and give them a boost, understandably, and I, and I use that all the time. And when I say cut off completely, I mean no gas money. I mean no utility bills. I mean no, hey, mom, can I borrow $10 here? When I mean they cut me off, they cut me off. It didn't mean they weren't there clapping me on, encouraging me, showing me love at every single corner. But when I say they cut me off, it was finally where I had no other resources. And what this did did for me, though, because anytime I would, even though I wasn't getting cash, when I was getting money for essentially some of my bills or assistance with maybe to help me with rent or something stuff that seems legit for parents to help with all that would do was ultimately free up money for me to longer escape responsibility that's all it did because even if i wasn't spending that money directly on drugs 
it just took me that much longer to actually have to go, I really need to take a look at myself and get my stuff together. It was just enough to keep me afloat to not actually face responsibility. That's what it did. And so once I got to that point and I had no other options, I was truly left alone. And when I was left alone to myself, living out of my car for those two months, waking up, not knowing how I got in certain places, um, after my pancreatitis, it started drinking again, my organs hurting. Um, When I got there, I was left alone to really take a look at myself for the first time in my life. I'd gone to AA and stuff over the years. I'd had people make me take a look at myself, um, but I had never actually sat in misery and really, really in my pits, cried out to God really stopped looking about what my friends cared about me, stopped caring about what my parents thought about me. I cried out to God. I just did not know what else to do. That's where it really started to change because this ultimately led me to the most important part of why I finally started to stay sober, but not just stay sober, but have a life I never thought possible. It led me, this led me to want to change for myself. And it's so funny. I thought for the longest time that was selfish because, but it's the, it's the number one selfish, it's the healthiest selfish thing you can ever do for yourself in recovery. But I promise you it's the key. And I say that because it had to come from me. It was not one thing that they said. It was not one friend that nudged me in the right direction. It had to come from me being in that pit and me just begging to God and really taking a look at myself and finally going, I want something different. That's when it really changed. That's when I, when I had no other choices, and I was left with myself, and I was mad at them. I thought they abandoned me. I thought they let me go, like, but that was the best thing they ever could have done for me. But I also understand, and I wish they could have done it earlier, but I understand why they couldn't because they loved me. They cared about me, but I'm telling you, that's when it changed, when I had no other options, when I had nothing else but to have that mirror in front of me to really look at myself, and they stuck their guns. That's the key, though. They didn't just cut me off. They stuck with that through my rehab with everything. They encouraged good behavior, but that, that, that's another thing that really changed for me. So, again, not doing it for my family, not doing it for my girlfriend, not doing it for my dog, not doing it to get everyone off my back, but doing it truly for myself. That's where it all changed. Your family, your girlfriend, they can be motivation, but they just can't be the reason that you stay sober. Because the first thing that happens to one of them, there goes your sobriety with it. There goes your identity with it. Your identity has to be in Christ. My identity had to get so, I had to be so alone with myself and put my identity in Christ and not everyone else before I finally really started to do it for myself. And I, I reiterate this just for the parents because you guys just can't do this for them. You can't. There's nothing you can do for them. It's just simply out of your control. Now, again, when I say you can't do anything for them, it doesn't mean you can't be their biggest cheerleaders when they actually make healthy decisions. When they have healthy behavior, guys, you can root them on. That's honestly, that's what meant more to me. Anything As I started to get healthier, them just being in my corner through it all, every time I fell on my face, as long as I got back up, that's all I cared about was that they were there. So you can be there for them. It doesn't mean that you can't help them completely anymore. But if you do, it needs to be with the right accountability, the right boundaries, like you guys are going to be talking about. If you guys need to help out your kids financially, bringing it to a counselor, having certain expectations set for that. I know that when there were certain things I had to meet first before I got money, I usually didn't get that money. And that means that I probably wasn't meant to have that money because I wasn't able to do the responsibility first. So there was uh, one other quote I really, my mom gave to me. This really could sum up this whole thing. And I can't express just how true this is because 
I want to take the pressure off you guys because it's just not on you. There's nothing you can do, say, that's going to change your kids. You can be there and encourage them in the right direction, but no one changes unless they want to. Not if you beg them, not if you shame them, not if you use reason, emotion, or tough love. There's only one thing that makes someone change, their own realization that they need to do it. I'm sitting here today telling you that's 100% true. And it's not just my sobriety that it keeps me on track. It, it just, it's, it's just so much more than the sobriety once you really get that, that fact. And it, it's helped me so much more in my life. And again, you can help them without enabling them. But you walk through it with your community. You walk through it with your healthy resources. Um, you walk through it with other parents that have gone through it. And you find it and stuff like that. That's why stuff like this is so important, guys. You not only are going to realize you just aren't in this fight alone, but you're going to realize how other people handled it. How other people survived stuff that you didn't think you were going to survive. That's why this community is so important. Um, and I just can't reiterate that enough. But um, I think you kind of talked about really what changed for you was um, really just getting back to the root for it. Um, but what do you do to really stay on track today? Like, well, what, what, is, what does Dick Forbes do <laughs> to keep himself out of a depression, to keep himself away from uh, that pint of ice cream at 2 a.m.? You know? No, it was ice cream sandwiches. That's right, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> I got real fat during that time, too, so, I mean, I stuffed it. That's what the eating was about, just stuffing it, and that's what we do. We self-medicate when we're in pain like that. I mean, we all got a drug picket. You know, food, money, sex, drugs, alcohol, you know, we all do something to self-medicate. I think the thing that was kind of my defining moment, um, uh, for five years of this period, um, I went to live with a couple up in um, White, Georgia, and they call it, it's Whites up there. <laughs> Got an S on Whites, right? <laughs> and uh, they, they lived out in this corner, and they had cows all around them and everything, so I was out in the country, and I grew up in Atlanta, so I was a city boy, and oh, cool, cool cows all around us, so. It didn't get cool when they were, sometimes, so. Anyway, so they had this uh, apartment. It was a theater room, and um, it had a bath and a kitchenette in it, and it was for rent, and um, it was real cheap rent, and um, and I I was close to work and everything, but it it became my cave, you know, because there was no windows on it, and, you know, you get a little disoriented when you don't see daylight and all that kind of stuff. But it became my cave, and it also became where I think God began to teach me what I needed to hear. So what began and what kill keeps me on track is this one thing, letting go. Mm. You know, I had to let go. And we all are brought to that place in our life. You remember the story when God came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, get out. Leave your family, leave your friends, leave the lay of the land, leave everything in your life and get out. And it says in Hebrews, he didn't know where he was going, but he obeyed God. Mm. Well, we've all been there. And, and what is it we have to let go of? What did Abraham have let go of? Well, lay the land, his friends, his enemies, everything. He had to let go of everything. And he didn't know where he was going. And, and that began to dawn on me more than anything. And what is it that I had to let go of? One was the illusion of control. Mm-hmm. It's an illusion. We don't have control. We just don't have control over that. And, and I began to relate so much to that prodigal son's father. You, you know, that, that has become my meat over the years too of that just that story because I can't imagine because that father and his son comes to him and his son was kind of a little jerk you know give me my inheritance and you know which would have been very culturally wrong you know it would have been an insult to the father you don't get the inheritance till you die it's basically the son saying I want you dead dad but that dad had to let go 
And one thing I think I gleaned from that father was this. He knew that his son was better off in God's hands than in his own. Hmm. And so the letting go comes for us sometimes of they're better off in your hands, God. Listen, God doesn't take sides in this process. I promise you, he doesn't. You know, he's not on our side. He's not on their side. God's, God's doing his thing. Abraham Lincoln was asked one time, who do you think's God's side? And he goes, I don't know. I just want to be on his side. Hmm. And, and so we, we, we have that. So the releasing, the things that we had to let go, or I had to let go of them, especially with that illusion and begin to relate to that prodigal father so much. And we have to release the things. I had to begin to release the thing that separates myself from getting better. And sometimes we have such difficult things that you and I have to let go of in our life. And it's not material things. Well, it, I, I can't not jump in there and fix my kid. You know, I can't do this. Listen, I don't care. Nobody has the right, and I mean nobody has the right, to treat another person like we're being treated sometimes as parents. You know, they say blood's thicker than water. Well, so is cow manure. Was always my take on it. That was the clean version. So, but, it, but it's true. Nobody has the right to do this. I don't care. No kid has a right. No parent has a right. No grandparent has a right to do this to an, another family member like that. So I had to let go of that right to feel victimized. I had to let go of that, of what they were doing to me. Um, I, you know, the other things, I had to let go of dreams. We all have those dreams with our kids, right? We all have those, those, those things, those moments that we think, those Norman Rockwell moments that we dream about that are, that are there. I had to let go of my pride. I had to let go of my children. I had to let go of trying. I had to let go of being a parent. And, and those things. Now, what didn't I let go of? I didn't let go of my love for my kids. I didn't let go of my faith. I did not let go of my pain because that's what was driving me. I wanted the, that pain to fix this in my life. And I didn't let go entirely of hope. Um, you, you know, I didn't let go of pleasant memories of my kids. So there's things I did hold on to. I remember, I don't know where, what TV show uh, I was watching, but there was a line in there, and somebody says to the, to the uh, other character in the, the scene, they said, well, you know, you just got to have hope. And, and, and the character says back, hope. You know, hope's one of the worst things you can give me right now. And it feels like that at times. Mm. You know, where's the hope in all this? But I didn't let go of hope that, that was there. And, and so, you know, that was kind of, you know, in, in that process that began to, to reconcile me. And I'm not to reconcile with my children. I begin to reconcile with me and with God. And that's who we all have to reconcile to. That's the point we have to get to. So what was the process to God get you to reconciliation, Joey? Ooh, um, still a process. Um, but luckily the reconciliation part of it, um, you know, isn't as messy as it used to be. I think um, God's always kind of going through a restoration process, especially when you're coming back from um, the destruction of Valley that I went through. But, you know, what really got me back on track, I would say, um, and I actually didn't even have it written down on here. Um, I, I first decided when I was in that valley and I really, really wanted help for the first time, I checked into a rehab in November of 2013. And... This introduced me to several things that, that were not only crucial to my sobriety, and I put that in there because sobriety is, is just really a part of it. I would not be sitting up here sober today if sobriety was the only thing that I, I was part of my walk. It was a restoration process and a walk with God. But the number one thing, um, I kind of just talked on it earlier, my identity for the longest time, and a lot of addicts too, are in 
people pleasing. It's in it was in other people. It was in <coughs> just so many other things, except for the one thing that I needed to be in more than anything, and that was Christ. Um, when I checked into a Christian rehab, which was Genesis Ministries, um, uh, Mr. Brokart was saying, and it, it was it was definitely not what I when I checked in there, I was like, this is a Christian rehab. I was like, we're gonna have to do Bible verses and stuff. And I, and I really didn't realize that was the crucial part of it. I went to rehab to get sober. That's why I went there initially. I wasn't going there like, I'm going there for my restoration with God. I was just trying. I really wanted to get sober, and that's all I knew. But when I really look at it, what, what I absolutely got there more than anything was my identity in Christ. Walking through him with it. Okay, now what does that walk through for me look like in not only my rehab uh, part of things, but just really my life in general? Accountability. That's one of my... Uh, I used to hate accountability. I used to hate when I said I was going to do something, someone would actually hold me to it. Um, and, you know, for the longest time, I avoided accountability, putting myself in positions of it. But for the first time ever, I actually had healthy safety nets. For the longest time, I had unhealthy ones where I could always lean back and it held back progress. But um, accountability really taught me for the first time to have someone that was going to call me on my crap, um, someone that actually cared about me enough not to just tell me what I wanted to hear, <coughs> but actually call me on my stuff and if I said I was going to do something they actually made me do it Um, that's one of the first things I really learned there was you know just learning how important that was having something behind me instead of having okay I know if I'm slipping on this bill my mom will take care of it okay I know if I'm in my mom will take care of this instead going oh I said I was going to do this Chris is going to ask me about this if I didn't like that's what I wanted as my safety net that made such a big difference and then you start to really realize, man, people really care about you. They want the best for you, and you all want it for each other. So, But where did I find that <clears throat> more than anything? It was in community. Um, not just stuff like this. I learned very early that any time that I was asked to do something like this, I was, it was from him. I was like, all right, I'll do it. So for a very long time, I learned the importance of getting in community. Um, I did anything I could like this. Um, now, it didn't always have to be rehab stuff. I did a lot of AA. I did a lot of... Um, church stuff but I did volunteer stuff I did stuff outside of rehab just simply getting into community and being around other people and realize god everyone's a mess everyone's going through it but when we're in isolation it feels so personal and personal attack from the addict side from the parent side and and really I've learned a lot of times most of the groups I go to if I'm going through something there's not a solution I find there's not a a, an answer something someone says something I'm like oh that's what I was looking for I'm better now it was just simply getting there and getting it out whether it was something even little or small or just hearing other people going through I would leave those meetings still just oh, okay I'm not alone in this okay okay this isn't a personal attack okay okay clearly some other people are getting through this so that's where I really started to find that in community and parents you guys will find the same thing too like he was saying earlier you'll you'll see other you'll see other parents going through the same stuff but you'll also see victories in other people's lives. You'll see valleys too, but you'll see them make it through that valley. And I can say the same thing in my own life. Um, and through all this too, I've always, I, I feel like I've been a pretty grateful person my whole life. Maybe not in my addiction, I didn't show it, but I've always really strived on gratitude. But what I really learned is being grateful for the crap, being grateful for the really tough times, being grateful for the pit, being grateful for while I'm walking through, even though I didn't want to feel grateful, yeah, I'm really happy this is happening, just knowing that God's doing something with it. And the more I've held that true throughout the years, 
the more I've been able to handle stuff that's just thrown my way with that perspective. Now, does it mean my reactions to things, ask my wife, are always great? No, they're not. I still fly off the handle on things that I wish I hadn't, but I dang well react 20 times better than I used to on a lot of things. It's because I work on it daily. It's a daily walk. And again, it happens with having a grateful heart. Um, But the last two things I put on here, and really they're kind of one and the same, um, the last one I put was getting outside of myself. Um, That's what not only keeps me sober, but just so much more than sober. There's a reason why my life keeps getting better and going on an upward track. doesn't mean there's a lot of challenges not in between it, but there's a reason why it keeps getting better, and it's because I learned a long time ago, the more I was looking inwards, the more I was missing everything going outwards. So I got outside of myself by serving. I, I do a Wednesday night class I've been doing for over eight years now. It started at the rehab I started at. Um, we actually have it in a basement now on Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock. It's an accountability and discipleship group. Um, I got thrown into this position of this class eight years ago. The guy stopped coming to class, the leader of the class, and they were like, Joey, do you want to lead it? And I was like, oh, what? And here I am eight years again because God asked me to do something, and I just went, okay, I guess I should be doing it. And, and so I got outside of myself, and I gave back. Um, the number one thing that helps me more than anything is doing stuff like this. My Wednesday night class is essentially um, a share group, and I just counsel to each person in the group. Um, And what I'm doing in in that is just essentially trying to connect everybody and go, hey, you guys all have such different stories and different stuff you're going through, but look, you're reacting the same. You're you're just as depressed. It's all the same reaction. It's all the same connectivity. And when we find that in community and we give back, then we get called to a higher level to teach what we've been taught. And that's what I've learned, that I'm still learning stuff every single day. But I think the reason why God keeps teaching me more is because I keep passing on the knowledge. I keep trying to pass on the knowledge as much as I can. If there's someone struggling that calls me um, or anything, I take it as a sign I'm supposed to pick up that phone. So I get outside of myself. I serve. I try to help others. And I just try to – the number one thing, too, uh, someone said to me a long time ago, um, he goes, you know what I really like about you um, in your relationship with God? And and I was like, oh, God, what's he going to say? And he goes, you're obedient. And I was like, what do you mean by that? He goes, you don't even think. You just act when he tells you to do something. And I said, yeah, but that took practice. That took a long time. And I still will sometimes be like, you sure? What about this? this? I know I'm supposed to act right away. But th- that's the thing. I learned to stop guessing and, and overthinking everything. And when it was something obvious, when a certain person was put in your life, when someone says that one nugget, when someone, when a God puts that clearly obvious person that is speaking to you, listen, it, it, he's, he's sending him for a reason. But I don't know how I left that off here. The one last thing I'll just wrap up in, and I can't reiterate enough more than anything. My main thing I was missing was my identity with Christ. I didn't realize that for the longest time. I grew up in church again, and, and my parents got divorced at age 12. It was the easiest divorce ever. Besides that, that was the only cataclysmic thing I had happen in my life. I had a good life. I had everything you could ask for. There was no thing that they did that you're like, ah, well, that might have done it. No. And I say that again, like he said, there's nothing you guys can do. There's nothing you did. I just want to take the pressure off you guys. It's not on y'all. You guys can still be there for them. You can still encourage them. You got to take care of yourselves. You got to still have a restoration process in y'all's life. You deserve it. Um, Doesn't mean that there's not going to be tough times. Um, But again, you can go through that with the community. You find that and stuff like this. So thank you guys for creating incredible outlets like this because this is what ultimately 
helps not people just stay on track, but connect people to other people. You might meet one person here tonight that ends up being someone that walks through your, your pit with you. So thanks again, guys. Um, I, I didn't really have a wrap-up for it, but that's really just – it's both right. of our stories, and then I'll let, I'll let, I'll let he, already, he already has it. Again, he's, he's always the, uh, the one that, he's the closer, if you will, so I should have I known that. So Dick Forbes will take us well, and, and I, I, know, I know we're getting a little bit late. So, um, but again, you, you know the four Bs of seminars and classes, the brain, the back, the butt, and the bladder? They're going to go on you. So. If not all of them, at least two or three are going to go on you. Um, I, I, would, I would say this, too, and I think in the defining moment was me, I began to look for purpose in my life. Because everything else had been taken away. And, you know, the letting go, what was the letting go? I had to let go of the whys. What were the whys? The whys, why did they do this? Why don't they do enough to prevent this? Why, did this, why didn't God intervene in this, this whole process? So you begin to search for purpose in this because you feel like you've lost meaning. Why do we get up in the morning to go to work? You know, our families, relationships. It's, it's what we do. It's what drives us that's there. And, and so that searching for purpose, and so I began to really realize, I remember a guy called me, a friend of mine, um, it was about 2013, is on Saturday, he says, you want to go feed the homeless in downtown Atlanta tomorrow? I said, sure. Mm-hmm. Never done it before. Went down there with my Kevlar jacket and boots and everything. <laughs> we went to the, it's the highest crime rate zip code in Atlanta. <laughs> and, uh, you know, when I left there, I said, this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. I'm supposed to work for the homeless. It's about 10 years. Or, no, it wouldn't have been 10 years. That'd be 2023. So we did it for a number of years. You know, Started taking Christian with me down there, and you know, God brought Christian into my life. You know, he he's been a healing aspect for me. He's he's that child that I never had. I know he's uh, Phil and Marty's, but <laughs> and, I know. And God brought Joey into my life too. So He began to give me purpose back in my life, and I began to think, what have I gained through this? In, in the pain, is the pain worth the gain? I, I have to say it is. I learned humility. I learned that the pride is the sin below the sin that that's there. I learned that I had to lose my idealism. Um, I became much less judgmental. Um, you know, if that were my kid, if that were my house, you know, don't say those things anymore, hmm. you know, that, that were there. I stopped blaming everybody else for my problems. Um, you know, I, I learned courage. That was one thing that God taught me. I was a coward, but God taught me courage in, in that. And, and the other thing is you wrestle with forgiveness through this process. But you learn to forgive people, the how and when and who and where and all those things. And, and I began to learn that God has been there the whole time. He's been absolutely there the whole time. Even though heaven seems silent, even so the scriptures seem silent, and, and even though I just wasn't getting anything. You know what made Job great at the end of the book of Job? He never stopped talking to God. That's what made him great. And, and it will make you great. It's, it's, it's helped me to become that way. Is I never stopped talking to God through this whole process. I mean, there was days I'd go, I'm not talking to you anymore. <laughs> I mean, I was like a child with him, him at times. I've, I've learned to encourage others. I, I've learned that there is a community of suffering that's out there. Um, I, I've learned a number of these things that, that, that are there. And, and so I, I would say, like Joey, I think it taught me more than anything is who I am in Christ. And if I encourage you to anything of that, we've got to understand that the bottom line was this, is that God is in control. God's got this. There is no plan B. We can try to manipulate it all we want. We can stick our finger in the pot all we want. It's up to God and that he's going to bring reconciliation, redemption in our life. 
Um, you, you know, so you remember the, um, did you all see the movie? I'll, I'll close with this one thing. You ever see the movie The Fisher King with Robin Williams? Mm. Yeah. It, it wasn't one of his better movies, but I thought it was a pretty good movie. He, Robin Williams is kind of this homeless guy, and he's got the hots for Amanda Plummer. So he's stalking her and following her around and finding all the stuff about her. And so he gets up the courage to, to ask her out and his buddies. They buy him a suit and everything. So they go on this date, and they have a blast. They have an absolute blast. And so at the end of the day, she's standing up here, and he's kind of down at the bottom part. And he goes, you know, this was so much fun. And he says, I'd love to see you again. And she goes, no, nah, let's just go out on a good note. Because you're going to find out what I'm like. I'm going to find out what you're like. And we're going to end up hating each other. So let's just call it quits now. Well, he knows all this stuff about her. So he kind of comes clean with her. And he says, you know, I know that you're shy. I know you have no friends. I know how terribly clumsy you are. You knock over everything. I know you hate your job. And then this was the defining moment in the movie. He goes, but I love you. And he knew all this about her. He knew everything about her. And, and, and that's the trend. That's the, that's the moment in that movie where you begin to say, he knew everything about her and he still loved her. Hmm. Here's the amazing thing. In our anger, in our pride, in our unforgiveness, in our resentment, in our bitterness, in our fear, in all those things that were going on, God still loves us. Hmm. You know, and I've got to remind you of this gospel over and over, the simplicity of it. He loves me. He promised never to leave me. And he promised to be sovereign in my life. Thank you all for having us. That's all we got to say. Any questions or anything? Yeah, we're going to open up for Q&A. So anybody got any questions, fire away. Joey, I'd like to ask you, yeah. you were talking about the support group that you have. Sure. That you started. Um, can, how would people, like, if, we get calls all the time from parents that sure. say, oh, my child is really looking for somebody to hang out that's sober. Um, where can they go for their own support yeah. you know, beside AA or what it, how can they get plugged into your group? Absolutely. Well, first of all, um, you can, you can, you're welcome to give out my information, too, and they can call me personally. But what my group is on Wednesday nights over here off of Glade Road, and we essentially meet in a basement every Wednesday at 7, and it's an accountability share group. Um, and all they would have to do is simply reach out to me, say, just, hey, this is yada yada, and, you know, I'm just I'm looking to get on track and get around a good group of guys, and I can just connect them into our community. And... Even if, I, I do a couple people that really reach out at the very first time that really want help, it's hard for them to make it to that first meeting. Mm -hmm. So what I'll do sometimes is I'll kind of build a relationship with them, encourage them, and show that it's a really relaxing <laughs> thing. It's what I really strive on on my Wednesday nights is making it like we're having a conversation like me and you. It's not, um, when I say accountability, it's not it's like all harping on each other. It's just, it's a group full of guys that we are all going through stuff and we're all seeing how we can go through it together. And we're also holding each other accountable on stuff that we're going to hold each other accountable on. So um, I, if, you, if you want my contact information after this, I actually have a couple business cards. Please come get it from me. I'd be happy to connect um, someone to my class. But it all starts right there too, um, not just in my own class. The good thing about my group is, um, so my group is kind of like the stepping stone for a lot of guys to get, find other good CR groups. Um, I have about 10 to 15 guys that rotate throughout this group and a couple five, 10 more that come through every once in a while. And they are all resources for other guys that come through the group. So I have a guy, Renee, who came through about a year ago. My class was his very first class. And, and then he asked um, Wiley, hey, what classes are you going to? And then we just connect him into the community that way because I tell every single guy that, that comes to my class the first time, all right, it's great you made it in here. This is just the start. The Wednesday just needs to be your first day. And then I try to connect them into more community. But, yeah, people first trying to make it to those first meetings, I try to go easy with them and just get them in. Just let them 
come sit in on a group, listen to us talk, and then I tell you, every single person that's ever joined our group for the most, most part go into it not knowing what to think, and they're like, oh, okay, it's just everyone just going through it together. So um, I have business cards you're welcome to give out, and we'll give out my, my contact information, and you're, I'm always here to help. I've learned that if God puts them in my path, then I, I'm meant to help them, and you know, some, sometimes people just need someone to talk to, so give my number. Uh, yeah, ab absolutely. Yeah, and if you guys don't want to ask on an open forum in here, please come see me after. I'm I'm happy to talk to you guys because I know it's you know kind of hard in front of everybody. Hey. I just had a question. Of course, for you, Jay. when you went through your personal reconciliation, sure. And was there a moment when you reconciled back with your parents, and what did that look like, or is that still happening? Or was there a moment that sure. you kind of came back? That's a that's a great question. Um, luckily, we're, we've gotten at least I hope so way past that <laughs> and. Um, <laughs> So some of us aren't there. Yeah, yeah, under, understandably, um, and it, it it was a process. It took a while. It wasn't at first. Um, it, it started with we did um, uh, this. What was called what was the parent stuff at Genesis that we did? Uh, inner was it not inner healing? Mm -hmm. But we did the parent stuff where we actually brought the parents in and reconciliation. So it started when I very first went into rehab, but it took about three years of really building that trust back. Um, and really, even after that, um, man, I don't know if I got my dad's garage code door until about five years later. Um, and, and, again, and, and again, through this, understandably, I mean, I, I, I stole from him. And in a lot of parents, I think, worry about, like, after a, after a certain amount of time, I need to forget. And honestly, five, six, seven, if my dad still didn't trust me in something, I would go, you know what? That's like, it's just, it's, the farther I get into my responsibility, I understand, like, trust is earned back and it takes a long time um but it took i would say probably three years for us to really where they were finally kind of starting to go okay i think he's you know I, I think i can let go finally um i would say but it definitely was um me breaking that trust a few times me having a couple relapses and um a couple times but it's what i did with the relapses that they saw different for the first time they saw me get back up and hold myself accountable and and again and through that that me bumping my head so many times, that part of it, when they saw me, what I did with it, that built the trust back. You know, just because I was relapsing didn't mean that they, they were losing trust as long as I got back up and did something with it each time. So, but again, it took, it took years to really get to that point to where I, I'm sure they can say they felt like, whew, okay, now let's worry about the other kid. You know, like, <laughs> so. You spoke a lot about alcohol yeah. and that being Sure. And, um, many of us have children that are doing other drugs. Sure. And when you talk about your support group and things like that, is it mainly focused on just alcohol? Oh. Do people have? Sure. That's a very good question. And, and luckily, I was a do everything. Um, alcohol is just what brought me to the hospital. But um, you're talking. Um, my drug of choice was was opiates. Really, that was my love more than anything. And what. I got it most addicted to, but everyone in our group, um, you have alcohol, you have somebody with Kratom um, that has an addiction, you have one with meth, you have one, every single drug you can think of. Um, and actually, what I opened up my group to about a year ago was we stopped even bringing just people with addiction problems with it, because like Dick said, we all have something. We all have vices, or we all have an escape. And so I opened up the group about a year ago to bring people in that are just simply struggling, and the coolest thing happened is this guy that came in here, he came in for depression. He was like, I just need to be around community. And he started to realize, like, all this, the, the, the sick behavior, 
people with addiction and the same stuff that he did. It was the same reactions. It was the same isolation. It was the same escape. And I think we separate the addicts from, from all the other stuff. It's really, it's all the same. At the same, at the end of the day, it's the same struggle. It's the same escape, the same isolation we're trying to, trying to get out of. So long answer long, we have everything under the sun, even people without actual addiction problems in it. Because I think you can't really limit it just towards that. Alcohol is just what, like, in my opinion, was the hardest for me to quit because of just the justification behind it in society and it just being everywhere. So, of course. Joey, you told me earlier that you went to Genesis twice, actually. Yeah. Tell us about what drove you to Genesis the first time and then the second time, and was it your choice or was it you being forced to? That's a great worst to. Great question, and man, that's that's the reason why I went back to. So that's a fantastic question, John. So first time, again, um, I was doing it for to calm the fire, essentially. Um, when I first checked in, and I want to say it was May of 2012. Earlier in that year, I had gone back to my mom's house and said, hey, I've been drinking again, and, and, and stuff had hit the fan. I'd gotten down to 123 pounds, um, and I got sober again, and I was sober for about three months, and they had me check into Genesis, and I checked out of Genesis about 10 days later because when I got to Genesis, I hadn't taken a look at myself. I hadn't hit my pit yet, and again, I was doing it because my mom was just like, she was so scared just that I was going to relapse again and that I was because I kept relapsing she's like you need something different but again that's why I went to Genesis in 2012 I went okay fine mom I'll go okay fine dad I'll go and I left after about 12 days that's when I truly hit my biggest pit more than I ever did that's when they really let go of me and when I checked back in in November 4th of 2013 I asked them if, if I could check myself back in for the first time that was the biggest difference was now, they were there for me when I was sick again, but they made it come from me, the, the self-initiation the second time. But the first time, it just didn't work out because, again, I was really broken, but it was not on me. It was not my idea whatsoever. It was, uh, okay, okay, okay. I'll calm it down. It just doesn't work if you're doing it for other people. Did you go to a lower level of spiraling downward when you left? <laughs> so I decided I had about two years sober at that point off just alcohol. I was still cross-addicting with everything else. So like, I, I, if I wasn't using alcohol, it was something else. Um, so I was cross-addicting, trying to think. Um, ask the question more, so my train of thought just went. So you left after 10 days. Okay. Between the time you left after 10 days and the time you went back, yeah, was it a year later. So it, within a- Did you hit a lower bottom than you were at before? Within 18 months, fully addicted to methadone. Uh, fully addicted to benzodiazepines, and I started drinking again with pancreatitis. So at that point, yes, I hit my absolute lowest. And where I decided to work after I left Genesis was Mink's Package Store. That's what I was thinking in my head. That's when it really went down. Yeah, that deserves a laugh because I had I had two years sober off alcohol, and they asked me if I wanted to be the wine manager, and I was like, well, all you have to do is spit out the wine. So I was like, you don't actually have to drink it. So I became the wine manager at Mink's Package with two years sober off alcohol, made that last a whole month, then I found a methadone connection, a benzo connection, and I hit. And, and, I, and I hit. When I mean I was living out of my car, waking up black in blackout areas, that I was every single day. That's where I was. That's when I really hit my pit. That's when I was left completely looking at myself for the first time ever. Do you go to AA or meetings now, or I know you leave the group, that group, but I just was wondering of sobriety. I, I think for me, 
personally, um, for the first few years especially, I went to everything. I went to AA, I went to, um, we had several meetings that we used to have at Genesis that we used to go to. I tried to do a bunch, but as I've gone, you know, I'm eight years into this now, I still do my Wednesday night group, but I don't necessarily go to um, sobriety groups anymore, but I do immerse myself in community. Um, me and Stephanie just joined um, a church called The Factory over in Woodstock, Georgia, um, about a month ago. But our main reason why um, we started doing that was so we could get more in community. Because um, we, we do a discipleship group now, we do a couple other things that just puts me in positions of accountability. And it puts me around other people that, you know, just are in a healthy mindset. So that's what I do now to stay sober is I just immerse myself in community and the right types of healthy things. And then I still have accountability groups I go to. And then there's a really great AA meeting that I go to every once in a while. It's called the How Place off of Bell's Ferry. And they have a meeting all day, every day, um, uh, seven days a week. And it's a really good, when I need to get back, if I'm feeling squirrely and you, need, and you want to get back to your roots and see people really struggling, the How Place has like people really just starting off in their sobriety. And that's a really good spot. met Dick, didn't know a whole lot about you until he came and talked here, and it was wonderful, and um, so many people that we've referred to you, I mean, he's the real deal, Christian can tell you firsthand, he, he will build a relationship with you, he, he understands because you've been through it, and he will meet you wherever if you need help, so I just thank you for Thanks. that. I, I will end on a good note, um, I'm having dinner with my daughter next Sunday night. This will be 14 years. And it'll be down in Savannah, so she lives down there. So, um, I mean, I was always texting, can we get together, can we meet, and always nothing back. And then one day she said, let's meet. So, so I'm, I'm, well, I'm scared to death, but I'm very excited too. So, I'd like to say something as well. So I, uh, I've been in therapy for how Most of your life. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, I got clean, and um, I thought I was like my wits end with the whole therapy thing, kind of giving up. And they reached the uh, brokers reached out to my phone, and like, "Hey, there's this guy, Carter's." I'm like, "Oh, okay." Long story short, I started seeing him when I was 18. I'm 25, and I still see him at least once a month. So, just pretty still good. hadn't fixed. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's gotten to the point he invites me. We have his sessions at his house now. So <laughs> something more. Thanks. He loves you to death, Dick. It's, it's mutual. Hey, Dick and Joey, one more question. I, I don't mean to monopolize. If y'all have a question, I will defer. <laughs> but we hear so often that what do I do when my kid is going to treatment because I've given him an ultimatum? You're going to either go to treatment or you're out of the house. They don't really want to go, but they're going because of my ultimatum. You didn't really want to be there, Joey, the first time, mm. but you did the second time. Are we wasting our money? Mm. I, w I wouldn't say no, not always, because ultimatums work sometimes. Mm. I mean, sometimes the, the person gets in treatment and they're there. The longer the treatment, the higher the success. Mm. Not these 30 days or, you know, three months thing. You need to be in there a year. And, and, Sometimes, I saw this a lot when I was working in rehab, they didn't want to be there, they had a loaded gun to their head, the court ordered, parents made them, all this kind of stuff. Two or three months in the program, something started to happen, yeah. you know? I mean, something just started happening in their heart, and, 
and you know it began to melt away. So it it may be a lot of resistance for the first 90 days, but sometimes it's not wasted money. You, it, there's no guarantee. Yeah. And I think that's where the the right healthy boundaries that I mean you can you have to have the right healthy boundaries put in place so that they have a chance of you know success because you can put them there and give them that ultimatum and still have the enabling part of it still there that creates that same circle going over and over again. So that's why boundaries are so important. So that class is going to be incredible because that's what <laughs> it will really work on more than anything. So I'm, ex I'm excited for you guys. And we did a boundaries class years ago and it was pretty great mm -hmm. on stuff like that. Anybody else? We'll hang around. Well, thank you so much.